For I've had enough of this world and its pleasures. I will arise and go forth to the house of my young. I will arise and go forth to the house of my father. I will arise and go forth to the house of my young. House of my young. Shalom, and welcome to today's teaching on the Hebraic roots of Christianity, where we study first century Christianity and the faith that Jesus, whose Hebrew name is Yeshua, which means salvation, taught his disciples. And now, Hebraic roots teacher Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries International. Shalom. I'm Eddie Chumney of Hebraic Heritage Ministries, and we welcome you to today's teaching on the subject, The Modern History of Israel. This is part two of the series. In 1904, Herzl died of a heart attack at the age of 44. For his efforts, Theodore Herzl became a living legend and became known as the father of modern Zionism. From here, Heim Weissman picked up the baton. He became, during the time of World War I, the new leader of the Zionist movement. After Herzl's death, the new leader of Zionism became Heim Weissman. Born in Russia in 1874, Weissman attended college at German and Swiss universities. In 1904, he began teaching at Manchester, England. Unlike Herzl, Weissman believed that a homeland in the ancient land of Israel was the only practical solution for the Jewish people. His reasons were not religious, but were derived from his perceived political realities. Just as Herzl's journalism caused him to be in the right place at the divinely appointed time, Weissman's chemistry talents caused the same thing to happen to him. Because of World War One, Britain had a need that Weizmann was able to meet. When the Allies' supply of acetone to produce munitions began to run out, which was previously imported from Germany, the British staff called on Weizmann to find some substitute. Following a two-year project, his team developed a superior synthetic that made a considerable contribution to the Allied war effort. Weizmann's contacts with the Manchester Society and his supervision of mass production of synthetic acetone for the Allies' war effort gave him him visibility and opened doors for him to make contact with high-ranking British government officials. These contacts included Prime Minister Lloyd George, First Lord of the Admiralty Winston Churchill, and Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour. Wiseman made personal appeals to these individuals to help him find a homeland in the ancient land of Israel for the Jewish people to further the cause of Zionism. The major result of Wiseman's diplomacy was the Balfour Declaration. It granted the Jewish people an international right to a homeland in Palestine with the help of Great Britain. The substance of the declaration was given in a letter to Lord Rothschild by the British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour on November the 2nd, 1917. And the Balfour Declaration stated the following. Dear Lord Rothschild, I have much pleasure in conveying to you on behalf of His Majesty's Government the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist 
Indigenous Aspirations, which has been submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's Government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, and will use their best endeavor to facilitate the achievement of this object, it being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which can prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Next, we're going to look at the significance of World War One and the fall of the Ottoman Empire. One of the significant events that contributed to the possibility of the Jewish people returning to their ancient homeland was the defeat of the Ottoman Empire in World War One. Because of this, control of the Middle East came under the rule of Great Britain. During World War One, Turkey was on the side of Germany. The British, through the leadership of Sir Edward Allenby, defeated the Turks and ended 400 years of Turkish rule over Palestine and 600 years of Muslim domination in the area. The Palestine Armistice was signed on October the 31st, 1918. This was 11 days before World War One Armistice was signed. This coincidence prompted Lord Balfour later to declare that the founding of the Jewish National Home was the most significant outcome of the First World War. Next, we're going to look at the relationship between World War One and Zionism. Oscar Janowski has summarized this relationship between Zionism and World War One as follows. The First World War proved decisive in the history of Zionism. On November the 2nd, 1917, the British government issued the Balfour Declaration, pledging to facilitate the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Soon thereafter, the British conquered the country, and when the war was over, Palestine was administered as a mandate under the League of Nations with the United Kingdom as mandatory or trustee. The Balfour Pledge was incorporated in the terms of the mandate, which recognized the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine and the right to reconstitute their national home in that country. Britain was to encourage the immigration and close settlement of the Jews on the land. Hebrew, as well as English and Arabic, was to be an official language, and a Jewish agency was to assist and cooperate with the British in the building of the Jewish national home. The British mandate was given international approval by the Council of the League of Nations on June the 28th, 1919. So in the map that you see here, the area in green was the area that was originally appropriated for the British mandate of Palestine. However, before its final sanction on September the 29th, 1922, the homeland projected for the Jews had been reduced to exclude Transjordan when Great Britain created the state of Transjordan under the kingship of Abdullah ibn Hussein. So therefore, in order to satisfy Arab objection, this is our first instance of land being given for peace. Next, we need to look at the events that were transpiring in the land itself. And in doing this, we need to look at the contributions of David Ben-Gurion. While Weissman furthered the cause of Zion through his diplomatic contacts in the West, David Ben-Gurion became pioneer for Zionism among the people in the land of Palestine. David Ben-Gurion was born in Poland in 1886. He migrated to the land of Israel in 1906. In the land, he became the most 
most active Zionist during this time. He became involved in the creation of the first agricultural workers' commune, which evolved into the Kavutza and finally the Kibbutz. He also helped establish the Jewish self-defense group, or the HaShomer. In the land, David Ben-Gurion was a founder of the trade unions, and in particular, the National Federation, the Hista Drut, which he dominated from the early 1920s. He also served as the Histon Drut's representative in the World Zionist Organization and Jewish Agency and was elected chairman of both organizations in 1935. He led the Jewish Legion against the Turks in World War I. After leading the struggle to establish the State of Israel in May 1948, Ben-Gurion became Prime Minister and Defense Minister when Israel became a nation. With the dispersion of the Jewish people into the nations of the world, Hebrew had practically become a dead language. With the rise of Zionism and the return of the Jewish people to their ancient homeland, Hebrew became the common language that all immigrants were required to learn. It was the dream of Eliezer ben Yehuda that when the Jewish people returned to their ancient homeland, that they would speak their ancient tongue of Hebrew. Ben Yehuda helped to make this a reality. Therefore, he is seen as being the creator of the modern Hebrew language. Ben Yehuda was born in Lithuania on January the 7th, 1858. He learned Hebrew at a young age as a part of his religious upbringing. Though migrating from Russia with tuberculosis in 1881, he devoted his life to rejuvenating Hebrew for modern use, even producing a Hebrew dictionary. In spite of much ridicule, he and his wife took a vow that no words would ever again pass their lips except in Hebrew, a vow that proved to be one of the turning points in the history of Palestine. In the decade following the international approval of the Balfour Declaration, many Jews made Aliyah and returned to the land of Palestine. During these years, they came mostly from Russia and Eastern Europe. In the eight years since the Balfour Declaration, the Jewish population had doubled from 55,000 to 103,000. Zionism had finally caught the imagination of the Jewish people and in oppression increased in Europe. Thousands of Jews fled to Palestine in the sanctuary of a Jewish national homeland during the decade of the 1920s. However, all this was greeted with stiff Arab rejection of Jewish immigration to the land of Israel. The main source of agitation was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini. The British had sought to control the country through two leading families of Palestine with large land holdings, the Husseinis and the Nashashibis. Haj Amin Husseini was appointed president of the Supreme Muslim Council in 1922, giving him immense political, economic, and religious clout. During World War II, he defected to the Nazis, moving to Rome and Berlin. In the 20s and 30s, he missed no opportunity to stir antagonism and wage war against the Jewish families settling in Palestine. Despite Arab opposition, a flood of 150,000 Jewish immigrants entered Palestine from 1931 to 1935. While the Jewish community was trying to persuade the British to allow increased Jewish immigration, the Arabs were threatening to cut off access to Middle Eastern oil supplies if immigration was increased. However, when European Jews needed the refuge of immigration the most, it was cut off from them. The ominous year was 1939. On May the 17th, 1939, the British government of Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain issued a paper known as the McDonald White Paper after Malcolm McDonald, the colonial secretary, which cut the immigration of Jews to Palestine to almost nothing. The 1939 White Paper specified three guidelines 
lines for Palestine. Number one, Jewish immigration would be slowed, then halted. Number two, Jews would only be allowed to buy land in areas where they were already the majority population. Number three, Britain would support an independent Palestinian state controlled by the Arabs after the war. This appeasement by the British brought about the judgment of the God of Israel. Winston Churchill called it a gross breach of faith. It was the virtual surrender to the demands of Arab terrorists. Yet the Grand Mufti even rejected this paper, demanding the immediate setting up of an independent Arab state in Palestine and no further Jewish immigration. What happened then to the Balfour Agreement? It fell victim to Chamberlain's government's policies of appeasement. Just as Czechoslovakia was offered to appease the Fuhrer in Europe, so the Balfour guarantee was sacrificed to appease the Mufti in Palestine. This restrictive British policy appears to have received an immediate judgment from heaven. Four months after issuing this white paper, which was May 1939, Britain was reluctantly drawn into World War II, which was September the 1st, 1939. As the Second World War erupted, Jewish emigration to Palestine came to a virtual halt. Visas from Europe were cut off by Adolf Hitler, and entrance into Palestine was shut off by the British. Adolf Hitler had a demonic desire to destroy and eliminate the Jewish people from existence. His desire could be seen in five progressive stages. Number one, the first stage began immediately when he took office and purposed to destroy all Jewish businesses in Germany. Number two, the second stage came in 1935 when the Nuremberg Laws were passed, depriving all Jews of citizenship. Number three, the third stage began with the mass arrest of Jews in September 1939 at the outbreak of war. Jews were put in concentration camps and required to wear the badge of shame, the yellow star of David, to distinguish them from non-Jews. For those still allowed to migrate, the ransom price was surrender of all possessions. By 1939, only 200,000 of the 500,000 Jews living in Germany six years earlier still remained. The fourth stage came in 1940, when all Jews were incarcerated in concentration camps. This roundup was later extended to all parts of German-occupied Europe. Nazis hauled Jews in from Austria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Poland, Romania, France, Holland, Switzerland, Belgium, Northern Italy, Yugoslavia, Denmark, and Norway, with only several outstanding exceptions. The fifth and final stage of this madness was called the Final Solution, and was initiated by Nazi leadership in 1942. The purpose of the concentration camps changed from detention to extermination, and murder became a full-time German occupation. The main death camps were located in Germany, Poland, Austria, and Czechoslovakia. The memorial at Yad Vashem has listed 22 of the largest camps, names known in infamy, Auschwitz, Buchenwald, Dachau, Mathausen, and Treblinka. The largest was Auschwitz in Poland, where over 3 million were murdered. So important was this carnage to Nazi leaders that it was given an even higher priority than that of the war effort itself. Although the Nazi cause was clearly lost in early 1945, the gas chambers and furnaces were kept running full blast. As Finkelstein remarks, the actual annihilation of the Jewish population was one of the main ideological and military objectives of the German Nazified war machine, and this objective was to a large extent achieved. In looking at the total Jewish victims of the Holocaust, which totaled nearly 6 million, there were in Austria 65,000, Hungary 402,000, Belgium 24,000, Italy 7,500, Czechoslovakia 277,000, Luxembourg 700, France 83,000, Norway 760, Germany 125,000, Poland 
Ireland, 4.5 million. Greece, 65,000. Romania, 40,000. Holland, 106,000. Yugoslavia, 60,000. When international teams of investigators confirmed the horrors of the Holocaust, most of the Western world agreed that immediate measures should be taken to open the door to Palestine. Even the British Labour Party agreed. With regard to the unspeakable horrors that have been perpetrated upon the Jews in Germany and other occupied countries in Europe, it said, it is morally wrong and politically indefensible to impose obstacles to the entry into Palestine now of Jews who desire to go there. It furthermore proposed that the American, Soviet, and British governments should see whether we cannot get that common support for a policy which will give us a happy, free, and prosperous state in Palestine. Even before the war ended, a significant shift occurred through the British elections of July 1945. Britain still had the League of Nations mandate to control Palestine. During the war, Prime Minister Churchill had been strongly supportive of Zionism and gave Weissman his word that a state of Israel would be set up in Palestine after the war with three to four million Jews. That was the view of both the Labour and Tory parties in their electioneering campaigns. But in 1945, Churchill's coalition was voted out of office in a landslide. Britain's severe economic setbacks during the war and its shrinking world empire led to the dissatisfaction that produced his ouster. The Labour Party of Clement Attlee took over with high expectations from everyone, including the Zionists. Despite candidate Attlee's pro-Zionist stance, however, his administration soon reversed itself on the Palestine issue. Ernest Bevan was made foreign secretary and thus became in charge of the Middle East and its problems. Though a sharp statesman and keenly perceptive of growing Soviet power, he did not share the pro-Zionist sympathies of his colleagues in the former administration. Bevan repudiated all the pledges that had been made officially and unofficially by labor speakers for the past 10 years, some of which may have helped the party win the election. Several changes made this reversal of policy the political prudent course for the new foreign secretary. The Arab world was gaining prestige and becoming a factor to be reckoned with. It had just added several independent states to its number and its oil power was claiming international respect. In juggling interests in the Middle East, Bevan tended to favor the Arabs and downplay the rights of Jews. To this end, Bevan came to fiercely oppose the creation of a Jewish state in the troubled area. Encouraged by Bevan, the Arabs boldly demanded that all Jewish immigration be stopped and a new Arab state be set up in Palestine. The irony is that none of those Arab nations except for Transjordan supported the Allies in World War II. They remained carefully neutral until the final months when Allied victory was assured. The Palestinian leader, ex-Mufti Haj Amin Husseini, in fact defected to Iraq before the war and later joined Hitler and Eichmann in Germany in their butchery of Jews. Yet the Arab states were shown amazing respect by the Allied powers in the post-war era. Seven states were given them in the United Nations General Assembly. When many Zionists began to realize that a political solution to establish a national homeland for the Jewish people could not be achieved, they saw the need for military action. The main Jewish resistance groups were the Haganah, the Ergun, and Lehi. Arab riots in the land of Palestine in 1920 and 1921 strengthened the view that it was impossible to depend upon the British authorities to defend and protect the Jewish people in the land of Palestine. After initially encouraging the immigration of Jews to Israel, the British now openly banned Jewish immigration. From these events, it became apparent that the British were not interested in providing security for the Jewish settlers in the land. Therefore, the Jewish settlers needed to create an independent defense force completely free of foreign 
Authority. With the help of the Worldwide Jewish Agency, the Haganah was created. In June of 1920, the Haganah was founded by the Histendrup, the General Federation of Jewish Labor. At the time, it was considered illegal by the British mandatory authorities. The Haganah became the underground defense organization of the settlers from 1920 to the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. As Arab hostilities increased, the members of the Haganah split over the question of how to react to Arab terrorism. Following Arab disturbances in the summer of 1929, a group of commanders and members of the Haganah, led by Avraham Tahomi, decided to split from the main group and set up their own organization to be more active in pursuing the Arab terrorists. This new organization was named Ergun Zava Laumi, or the National Military Organization, also known by the name of Etzel. It was founded in 1931 and became an underground organization that operated in Palestine in the 1930s and 1940s. Ergun rejected the restraint policy of the Haganah. They carried out armed reprisals against Arabs and preferred to use political powers to forward the goal of reclaiming the land. While the armed reprisals against the Arabs provided relief for the Jewish settlers, it was condemned by the Jewish agency and brought political embarrassment to them. While the Jewish agency tried to provide an image of the Jew being a good, moral person who was being terrorized by the Arabs in order to win support from the non-Jewish world, the Ergun gave its full support to the settlers. On December the 5th, 1936, Avraham Tahomi signed an accord with Ziev Jabotinsky, the leader of the revisionist movement, making Jabotinsky commander of Ergun. In April of 1937, during the Arab riots, the Ergun split. About half of its members returned to the Haganah. The rest formed a new Ergun, which was ideologically linked with the revisionist movement and accepted the authority of its leader, Vladimir Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky was born October the 18th, 1880, in the city of Odessa, Russia. The pogrom against the Jews of Kishinev in 1903 spurred Jabotinsky to undertake Zionist activity. Jabotinsky was deeply impressed by Theodore Herzl. Jabotinsky was elected as a delegate to the Sixth Zionist Congress, the last in which Theodore Herzl participated. After World War I, Jabotinsky became disenchanted when Great Britain severed almost 80% of the British mandate originally designated for a Jewish homeland to create Transjordan in 1922. Transjordan today is just called Jordan. Disillusioned with Britain and angry at Zionist acquiescence to British reversals, Jabotinsky became unhappy with the direction of the Zionist movement. He was unconvinced that the Turks or the Arabs would accommodate the aims of Zionism, so he advocated bolder tactics. Jabotinsky set about establishing a separate Zionist federation based on revision of the relationship between the Zionist movement and Great Britain. This federation would actively challenge Britain policy and openly demand self-determination or Jewish statehood. The goals of the revisionist movement included restoration of a Jewish brigade to protect the Jewish community and mass immigration to Palestine of up to 40,000 Jews a year. With the outbreak of World War II, Ergun declared a truce, which led to a second split. Some forces decided to fight with the British against the Nazi Axis powers. This group declared a truce and joined the British Army in the Jewish Brigade. The second group, led by Avraham Stern, was known as the Stern Gang, or Lehi. They operated as an underground organization. Well, that's going to conclude part two of the series on the subject, The Modern History of Israel. Shalom in Yeshua the Messiah. Amen.
Thank you, Eddie. This is Stephen Morgan, and all of us here at Hebraic Heritage Ministries pray that you have enjoyed today's teaching. If you've been blessed, will you help us to share this message with others? Hebraic Heritage Ministries is supported by your generous financial gifts. In order to help you in your studies and to help us share this message with others, we are offering today the DVD, Yeshua the Lawgiver, for free for a love gift of any amount to the ministry. Hebraic Heritage Ministries also offers a monthly discipleship program. If you are interested in starting a fellowship group in your area, let us know. We would like to help you. Please contact us for more details. Our website is hebroots.org. That's H-E-B-R-O-O-T-S dot O-R-G. We would like to hear from you. Please send us an email. Finally, in order to take advantage of today's free offer, please mention this product offer and... Please mail your love gift to Hebraic Heritage Ministries, P.O. Box 81, Strasburg, that's S-T-R-A-S-B-U-R-G, Ohio, 44680. Until next time, may Yeshua richly bless you.